Hi, and thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Nurse Assessment Coordination, ANAC. I'm your host, Rebecca, and I'm here with Jesse McGill, Curriculum Development Specialist with ANAC, who recently spoke on the topic of PDPM at the ANAC and AADNS Conference in Orlando, Florida. Welcome, Jesse. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for being here. During your session, you received many questions that were not answered at the time about PDPM. Let's review some of those today and see if we can get some answers for our members. Sounds great. Perfect. Our first question is a general question about PDPM. If a resident is admitted for therapy, but after two weeks, the resident's condition declines and therapy discharges, but the resident continues for skilled nursing only, will the facility continue to receive the therapy components? Oh, such a great question, and this comes up so frequently. The first thing I want to talk about is the fact that PDPM has six different components to the rate. It has a non-case mix component, and then it has five case mix adjusted components. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, the nursing component, and the non-therapy answering component. And every single resident, regardless of services that they're receiving, will receive all six components because these components are based on resident characteristics, not on the services that we're providing. And so to answer this question very directly, yes, this resident who was receiving therapy, therapy discharge, they're continuing on nursing only, they will still continue to receive all six components. Perfect, thank you. For our next question, it's about the transition from RUG4 to PDPM. If a resident admits on September 27th, the five day with an ARD is September 30th and results in a nursing level because only four days of the therapy was provided. How does this affect reimbursement? Oh, this will affect reimbursement. So uh, the big impact is that any of those end of September emissions have the potential of not achieving a rehab level under RUGS-4. And because the transition from RUGS-4 to PDPM is a very hard transition, you must have a ARD on or before September 30th to bill for any of the days under RUGS-4. Once you get in October 1st, you're going to be following all of the PDPM billing and rules, and that requires a new assessment. So this member has a very great question of, if you have that admission that comes at the end of September, say on the 27th, we have to have a five-day ARD that's within the September days in order to bill for the September days. If you don't have that, you can't bill for those days. So we have an ARD of the five-day for September 30th to bill for those days. Now, if there's not enough days to achieve a therapy rug level, then you won't achieve a therapy rug level, be a nursing rug level. Now, one thing that kind of helps to offset this loss in revenue is the fact that any resident that transitions over from RUGS-4 to PDPM, the variable per diem adjustment is going to reset on October 1st for the transition. So for those residents, you will have the NTA component multiplied by the factor of three. So three times that NTA component for all residents that go through that transition for October 1, 2, and 3. So yes, we have the potential of loss of revenue at the end of September, but we also have the potential for a gain of revenue of that NTA component on October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That's very good to know, Jesse. Thank you. Another question on the transition. For residents who begin their Medicare stay prior to October 1st, 2019 and require the IPA during the first seven days of October, how will A2400 be coded on the IPA? Another great question. So we have to do this transitional or changeover IPA October 1st through October 7th. It has to be within those ARD windows. And that's going to establish the HIPS code that's going to bill under PDPM effective October 1. Now, when it comes to the look back period, 
the look back period can go back beyond October 1st. So you can set your ARD of your IPA assessment on 10-1. And it's okay that your seven day look back period goes into September and your 14 day and your 30 day. Those look back periods can extend back into that days before October 1st. So the look back period is not affected by the hard transition date. So if you had a Medicare start date before October 1, it's going to stay the same. So your start date won't change when you're completing that IPA for the changeover assessment, October 1 through October 7. Thank you, Jesse. For our final question on the transition, will we be able to use short stay criteria for Medicare Part A residents between September 24th to the 30th? Oh, great question. And this ties right back into that first transition question that you had asked me, and I didn't quite get to this part of it. So this is great that this question came up. So the short answer is no. You cannot do the short stay policy for residents just because they're transitioning from RUGS 4 to PDPM. The RUGS 4 short stay payment policy has a very strict criteria, and one of that criteria requires that the Medicare stay ends on or before day eight of the Medicare stay. In order to do the short stay payment policy, all criteria of the short stay must be met, means their Medicare stay must end. So again, the short stay will only apply if the resident's Medicare stay is actually ending. It will not apply to residents who are transitioning between RUGS 4 and PDPM. Now, keeping in mind, there is a potential that you will not achieve that rehab level in residents that don't achieve four days of therapy under RUGS 4. But again, we do have that NTA component that has a variable adjustment of 3.0 during those first three days of October. Thank you, Jesse. Next, we had a question regarding the requirement of physician certifications. How will a Medicare certification be filled out when only the five-day MDS is required? Another great question. And uh, to really simplify this, we have to separate the PPS rules with the Medicare rules because the PPS payment system is what's changed. So the PPS for SNF residents currently requires RUGS 4. As of October 1st, the payment model is going to be PDPM. But the Medicare rules have not changed. So if you look at the Medicare benefit policy, it's going to remain unsame. The skill level of requirement, the skill level of care, the qualified hospital stay, all those technical and eligibility requirements have not changed. And the requirements for the Medicare certifications, even though they kind of paralleled the MDS schedule before, it wasn't reliant on the Medicare schedule. So you'll still require the physician certifications at the same interval. So on admission, the first research by day 14, and then your following research cannot exceed 30 days from the previous signature of certification. That's good to know, Jesse. Thank you. ICD-10 has been a hot topic, and you received several questions in this category. The first is, does the ICD-10 code have to be pulled from the actual discharge summary document from the hospital or from other places in the medical record? Oh, I love this question. So get your diagnoses from every source possible. Under PDPM, it's really unique because we have ICD-10 code and diagnoses. And I, and I say that differently because we have our diagnoses checkbox section and section I-0100 through I-7900. And then we actually have ICD-10 codes that we place in I-8000 and we have to use for I-20B. So we're using a lot of diagnoses and they are impact the PT and OT component, the nursing component, the speech component, and the NTA component. So all of the case mix components are impacted by ICD-10 coding. 
So when we're looking at the completeness of collecting those codes, we need to look everywhere. We really need to do some digging as residents are being admitted as part of the pre-admission process and as, as they come to our facility and reviewing their medical record. So long story short, yes, use all the information that you receive from the hospital, HMP, surgical procedure, any physician documentation that you have, and then don't stop there. If you did not get enough information, from what you gathered or you think you identified that there's possible missing diagnoses, such as a resident with a CVA that has additional residual effects that have not been well enough documented to code as an ICD-10 code, follow up with the physician, query the physician, identify all those diagnoses, get that documented, and we have to have that documentation in place by the five-day ARD in order for it to be captured and impact our reimbursement. Perfect. Thank you, Jesse. For the next question, we have for the 18% of the nursing component on HIV AIDS and achieving the eight points for NTA, is it just the diagnosis of HIV positive? This actually uses diagnosis B20, which is symptomatic HIV. Now, what's unique about this code, it's the only diagnosis code that it may not be coded on the MDS. And the reason that is, is some state laws prohibit the skilled nursing facility from coding B20 on the MDS. And that's part of their HIPAA regulations. However, the MACs are able to pull this information directly off the claim and that 18% and that eight points for the NTA component will be added on to the reimbursement at the MAC level once you have submitted that claim. Thank you, Jesse. Listeners, please stay tuned while we take a quick commercial break. Ready to take a deeper dive into PDPM? In our new PDPM intensive series for SNFs, master teacher Jesse McGill maps out the elements for successful transition. In this four-part virtual workshop series, you'll learn how to not just survive, but to thrive in PDPM. Learn more by visiting anac.org slash virtual workshops. Welcome back. Let's continue our discussion with Jesse McGill about the questions she received about PDPM. I know this question comes up quite frequently. If a resident had residual muscle weakness for an infection, such as pneumonia or a UTI, that was resolved in the hospital, is the infection coded? Oh, great question. Now, according to the ICD-10 coding guidelines, it indicates if an infection is resolved prior to coming in to the skilled nursing facility, it would no longer be coded. However, we cannot use the code of muscle weakness because currently this does result in a return to provider code on the ICD-10 mapping file. So we are pending some further REI guidance on how this can be coded in the skilled nursing facility when we have this criteria. So great question and one I don't have a great answer for quite yet. Thank you, Jesse. Hopefully we get that guidance soon. For our next question, it's in regard to the SLP component. Is the presence of the acute neurological condition used for the SLP component based on the primary diagnosis coded at I-20B or all diagnosis in Section I? Oh, this is another great question, Rebecca. So when you're looking at acute neurologic condition for the SLP component for the first tier item, which is the none, any one, any two, or all three, this does require coding at I-20B, so that primary clinical reason the residents in the SNF for the Medicare stay, and that ICD-10 coded I-20B must map to an acute neurologic category on the ICD-10 mapping file. So for that category, it does just map to that I-20B category. However, if your resident does have 
other secondary acute neurologic conditions. Make sure those are also coded, especially if they are going to impact an SLP-related comorbidity or one of the NTA components or even one of the nursing components so that we have that documentation in place, even if it's not the primary clinical category because, of course, that impacts both PT, OT, and speech. Thank you, Jesse. The variable per diem is a very new concept for NACs. Hopefully, a response to these lingering questions will help our members. Could you please clarify if the variable per diem applies to the day count of the stay or the day count of that Medicare Part A benefit? Great question. So the variable per diem applies to the day in the Medicare stay. So if we look at the documents that CMS has released, it really looks at whether it's day one, two, three, four of that Medicare stay. And keeping in mind, a resident can have multiple stays throughout the year, and each time it's a new stay, the variable per diem is going to start over with a new count starting at day one. Now, one thing that's kind of tricky in this situation is, first, we have the transitional period. So for any resident that transitions from RUG score to PDPM, October 1 is going to reset the variable per diem for those residents. And how we can easily identify these residents is if A2400B, the start of the Medicare stay, has a date that's pre-October 1, before October 1st, and they're continued on their Medicare stay after that point. Then October 1st, 2nd, 3rd, we're going to have that NTA component adjusted by three like we talked about earlier. And furthermore, if you look further out in that stay, if the resident continues on Medicare, October 21st is where you're going to start seeing the decline of the PT and OT by 2% every seven days, which of course starts on day 21. So the transitional period is kind of unique because any resident that actually transitions from RUGS to PDPM will restart that variable per diem schedule on October 1st. Now, the last thing I want to mention in this question, which at first seemed very simple, but as we keep talking, you know, there's, there's some complex ideas here, is we have that interrupted stay policy. If a resident qualifies for the interrupted stay, which means they're out of the facility for less than three days, that's a continuation of the same stay. So the variable per diem is not reset if you have one stay that's interrupted by less than three days. If you have a resident that's out of the facility for more than three calendar days, then that's considered a brand new stay and the variable per diem would be reset. Thank you, Jesse. That's good information to know. For our next question, if the resident has a hospital discharge within the first three days of the Medicare stay, does the variable per diem apply when they return? Great question. So uh, this is kind of a tricky question because it depends on how long they're out to the hospital. So I'll just run through a quick scenario here. If they're in the facility for day one and day two and go back out to the hospital on day three, day one and day two have the variable per diem of the adjustment factor of 3.0 for the NTA component. And that would be applied to day one and two. Now, let's say the resident's out of the facility for day three, they go to the hospital, but they come back on what would have been day four. If we follow the interrupted stay policy, which says they were out less than three calendar days, this is a continued stay. So they actually did not get billed for that original day three. So the day they return is the new day three, and we would apply that variable per diem adjustment to that new day three. So if you do have a resident that has an interrupted stay, they're out of the facility for less than three days during that benefit period. We kind of just skip over those days when we do the variable per diem count. So you're going to look at how many days are billed to Medicare. And so we're, the first three days that we build a Medicare, we'll have that NTA component on them and we'll continue the count out from there. I hope that's clear enough. It's really hard to explain verbally without, I, I like to draw a diagram to really show how that applies. And hopefully I was able to communicate that clear enough. 
That's a great answer, Jesse. Thank you. When completing an IPA, does the NTA component variable per diem reset to day one with an adjustment factor for 3.0 for the first three days following the ARD of the IPA? It does not, Rebecca. So the variable per diem is not reset with the completion of an IPA assessment. The IPA will establish a new HIPS code, which does effectively reset the rate based on that HIPS code, which is effective on the ARD of the IPA assessment. But the variable per diem is not impacted by the completion of an IPA. Good to know. Thank you, Jesse. We have time for just one more question. Do restorative programs only influence reimbursement when the category is physical function reduced, or does restorative have more impact in PDPM? So when we look at restorative under PDPM, it really does only impact the case mix methodology in the nursing component under PDPM. And it impacts two categories under the nursing component, the cognitive impairment behavior category and the reduced physical function category. Those are the only two categories under the nursing component that utilize the restorative end split for case mix methodology. However, you are able to use restorative in other areas to help reduce costs when appropriate, for example, if restorative is able to help with some bed mobility activities and not have skilled therapy service provide those tasks, when it's appropriate, those are ways that we can help reduce the cost of therapy services to help increase the overall reimbursement and revenue for a Medicare resident. Of course, restorative cannot be providing the same services as your skilled therapy because that would indicate that it's not a skilled service. So we can use those when appropriate to help supplement the resident's care and provide overall very comprehensive care to the resident to meet their goals. Thank you, Jesse. That's very good information. Also, thank you, Jesse, for joining us today. This has been very informative for our members. You've answered so many of their questions. I'm always happy to be here, Rebecca. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button so that you never miss a future update. Also, be sure to check out the PDPM virtual workshop now available on the ANAC website at aanac.org.